1893, the World's Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago, Illinois. And this was like an early example of the World's Fair. It attracted around 21 million people. Now, that's an incredible number of people, especially considering this was in the days before the invention of the automobile. Now, among the features of the Columbian Exposition was the World Parliament of Religion. Now, the goal of the World Parliament of Religions was to work for the, was for the, was for the world religions to meet together uh, and share their best points and try to find common ground to work together for the betterment of the world. The great evangelist and a personal hero of mine, Dwight L. Moody, he saw this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. So he called for and commissioned evangelists from all over and he stationed them at what he called preaching posts all around the city. He used churches and he rented theaters and he even rented and erected a circus tent as a meeting place to preach the gospel. Moody's friends encouraged him to attack the parliament of religion, and he refused, saying, I am going to make Jesus so attractive that men will turn to him. Now, Moody knew that preaching Christ as preeminent, as the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ, would do the job. And indeed it did. The Chicago campaign of 1893 is considered to be one of the greatest evangelistic works of Moody's celebrated life. Thousands came to Christ during that campaign. I read this story today, and as I did, I was struck by Moody's words. He wanted to present Jesus so attractive that people would turn to Him. You know, as I look at the news and as I look at social media today, I think the, the modern American church we could do with a bit of returning to this method that Moody had. I mean, what would be different? If rather than being angry and argumentative, we just presented Jesus, the greatness and the goodness, the majesty and the preeminence of Jesus in such a way that people were drawn to him. Now, Moody actually did not invent this method. He copied it from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossian church. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to see what we can learn about why Jesus is preeminent and why that is that is and should be attractive to draw people to Him. So open your Bible to Colossians 1. We're going to start reading in verse 15. That's page 902 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Colossians 1 and 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the church, the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. The title of the message tonight is The Preeminent Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You. You are wonderful and amazing and awesome. Uh, God, we want tonight 
to learn more about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Father, as we do consider these some truths that are foundations for discipleship, we know that Jesus is central to all of that. So God, tonight as we look at what Paul wrote about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, let this stir our hearts afresh at the greatness and the goodness and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Father, let us see how wonderful and how good and how attractive Jesus is. And Lord, let that stir our hearts and our lives so that the words that we say would reflect the good Savior that has saved us. Father, let what we learn about Jesus change who we are and how we are in all areas of our life. Oh God, tonight send your Holy Spirit and let Him focus our hearts and our minds upon you. Help us to lay aside any cares of life that we may have brought in so that we could listen to your word and we could take it and apply it to our lives. Make our hearts the good ground and let make our lives, Father, changeable in your hands that we would be your people, fully devoted to doing your will. We ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Right now, the Colossian church was being invaded by heretical teaching. The false teachers that were coming in taught in part that, that God created an angel that created another angel that created another angel. On and on and on and on and on and on it went. And the last angel in this series is the one that created the world. Now, the impact of this false teaching is that they determined that Jesus was not God. Jesus was one of the, the emanations, or He was one of the creations of God. He may well have been an early creation of God, but He was still a created thing. He was not the eternal, everlasting God who had always been. The impact of this, or Paul wrote this section of the book of Colossians to refute this heresy. And what's neat is the way that he goes about doing it. He doesn't do this by speaking negatively uh, about the false teachers or even the false teaching. Instead, he simply presents Jesus. Now, to be sure, the ways that Paul presents Jesus in this passage goes against very specific things that these teachers were saying about Christ. But the focus still remains on Jesus and not on the teachers and not on the false teaching. Right? And I think there is an element that, that is a lesson there for us. Right? As we live in a world where there is much evil, there is much wickedness, there are false teachers and false doctrines and false things that go on, it's easy to make that the focus of what we talk about, the focus of what we say. Rather than do that, we should just present Jesus right? as, as great and awesome and Savior and all that He is. And all that he has done. Now Paul's key statement seems to be at the end of verse 18. When he says that in all things that he may have the preeminence. But in a lot of ways that is Paul's key truth for this passage. That Jesus is preeminent. Now preeminent essentially just means that Jesus is superior. Or that he surpasses all others. Right so. Paul's focus on this passage and our key truth is that nothing or no one compares to Jesus. Nothing or no one compares to Jesus. And this passage gives us seven reasons 
why nothing or no one compares to Jesus. Now, to, let me go through this, say something quickly. I had to, we're going to go through this very quickly because if I were to spend eight minutes or ten minutes on every point, we would be here a very long time. Right? And so, we are going to go through this quickly, uh, and, and a lot of things, some things I'm not going to mention very much of, but I'm going to try to cover all of these things at least enough to ground our, our minds in these truths. Right? First is that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Paul says in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now part of the Colossian heresy was the idea that you could never really know God. Since God was so high and so holy and so far removed from us, it was practically impossible to know Him personally or even really to know what God was like. Now, Paul counteracts that idea by saying, if you want to know, G- to know God, just look at Jesus. Right? That Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Right? If you want to know God, know Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That Jesus is the perfect representative of God for mankind. Any question about who God is and what God is like and what God might do, is answered perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. But the author of Hebrews says something similar. He says that God at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets. Right now, what we know is that God spoke in a lot of different ways throughout the Old Testament. Right? He spoke to prophets in a lot of different ways. To some prophets, angels brought messages. To Moses at one point, a burning bush brought a message. To a false prophet named Balaam, a donkey brought a message. Sometimes God spoke in visions and dreams. Other times God thundered from the top of a mountain. And all of those ways was God speaking to His people to let them know who He was and what He was like. But there was still a better revelation coming. But God has at these last days spoken to us through His Son. Whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Who being in the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power. When he himself had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. The ultimate revelation of God came to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. But he is not like a mirror that reflects God. Instead, he is the very person of God. Right? The, 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 where's it at up there? Uh, good grief, I lost my train, I lost my spot. Being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person. But this isn't that Jesus is a mirror that reflects what God the Father is like. This is that Jesus is God. And so, He is that perfect revelation of who God is and what God is like. Uh, Jesus perfectly represents God to us because He is God. Right? So He makes the essence of God clear. He makes the nature of God clear. He makes the love of God clear. He makes the, the determination of God to save souls clear. The prophets could only tell what they had seen and heard, which was great but limited. Jesus, on the other hand, 
He doesn't merely pass on information about God. He is the information about God. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. No one, nothing and no one compares to Jesus because He is the supreme revelation of God. Secondly, Jesus is creator of all. It says, the firstborn over creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, the false teachers believe that the physical world was evil. All things that were material were evil and things that were spiritual were typically good. Since the physical world was evil, there is no way that God himself could have created it. They reasoned then if Jesus were God, he could not have created the world because that would have sullied him with the with the evil of the world. Some taught that Jesus, again, was the first being that God created. And I'll address that more in the next point. But for now, the issue that we're looking at is the idea that Jesus created everything. Right? That's the point Paul is making in verse 16. By him, all things were created. Heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, prince, dominion, principalities and powers, all things were created through him and for him. Right now, Jesus is the creator. He's the creator of all things. Now, we saw in Hebrews, Hebrews even mentioned that, that Jesus is through whom he created or he made the world. Right. So Jesus is creator. This is seen all throughout Scripture in the New Testament. But it's important to notice what he created. It says all things. Heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities and powers. All things, again, were created through him and for him. Right? So Jesus, he created the stuff we can see and he created the stuff that we can't see. By visible and invisible, Paul was referring to really to like spiritual things. right? So angels that were created, were created by Jesus. Even the principalities, the evil angels, right? They were angels that fell at some point. So initially they were good angels. They were created by Jesus. And when they fell, they're still a part of what was created by Jesus. The, the idea of uh, principalities and powers, dominions and thrones, right? So the nations created the world. He, the Bible speaks like in Acts 17 about God determining the span of nations, when the nation would rise and when a nation would fall. And think about the story of Daniel. Daniel speaks repeatedly about God being sovereign and God choosing what kings would rise up and he gives them power. And yet when those kings like Nebuchadnezzar forget that their power was given to them by God, God can snatch that away from them in an instant. Paul's idea here is that when it talks about God in that way in Daniel, it's speaking of Jesus. Right, that He is creator and ruler over all of the world. Jesus is creator of all things. So nothing or no one compares to Jesus because Jesus is creator of all. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. He is creator of all. And Jesus is Lord of all. The Colossian heresy taught that while Jesus may have been unique, He was not Lord 
over all things. Right? The ancient world was dominated by a fear of spiritual powers. And they lived in a constant fear of that. Now the spiritual powers and the way that they understood it, they controlled more or less all of uh, the natural forces of the world. Right? There were spirits that controlled thunder and wind and rain and lightning and heat and cold and all of those things were controlled by spiritual forces. Now the way that they thought the majority of those spiritual forces were hostile toward man. And these spiritual forces were far more powerful than men or even the things that God had created. Only God was stronger than these evil spiritual forces that were hostile towards man. But God didn't get involved. right? God never was actively involved in the way the things on this world went. So as I said, according to this heresy, not even Jesus could do anything about this. He was not greater than them. But Paul had other ideas. He says at the end of verse 15 that he is the firstborn over all creation. He says in verse 16 at the end that all things are created through him and for him. And he says in verse 17 that he is before all things and all things consist in him. Right, So they get their life and their breath and their existence by him. Right, And over and over again, that's what he's saying, that he is... Lord. Jesus is Lord over creation. Jesus is Lord over all things. Jesus is Lord. But there is a troubling statement that here in this idea that Jesus is the firstborn over creation. What does that mean exactly? Now, the false teachers troubling the Colossians said that Jesus was the first being that God created. And modern Jehovah's Witnesses have said the same thing. Uh, several years ago, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses came to my house to evangelize me. When our discussion turned to Jesus and the fact that He was God, they brought this up to show that while Jesus was unique, and He was the first creation of God, He was a creation of God. Jesus was not eternal and he was a creation. Well, how do we answer that when it does say that he is the firstborn over creation? Well, there's two ways. First, we have to understand the idea of firstborn in the culture of the time. Firstborn doesn't mean much in our culture. Firstborn in my family is my brother. And that doesn't mean a whole lot. He's not better than me at anything. Right? In a lot of ways, I consider myself to be better than him in everything. Right? I mean, there's just... Uh, firstborn doesn't mean much in American culture. But it did in this day. The firstborn had high-ranking privileges that other children did not have. The firstborn often had the same power and the same authority as the father, particularly once they were of age as an adult. Once the firstborn became the heir, they were considered an adult, they, they had all of the rank and all of the privileges and all of the authority of the father. And that's the idea that Paul was bringing up here. But it's not that Jesus was the first being created. It's that Jesus is over all of creation. As the firstborn, he had that place 
of honor. He has the place of power. He has the place of authority. He's saying that Jesus is Lord. Now, another way to answer the idea of firstborn, not meaning first created, is is look at verse 18. He's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, the logic that firstborn over creation means that Jesus is the first creation, that would also mean, and you carry that through in the same passage to say that means Jesus is the first person raised from the dead, right? I mean, that would be the, the logical way the argument should go. Because we're talking same word, same concept, just a few sentences apart. But is Jesus the first person to be raised from the dead? No. No, not not even close. That there were several people raised from the dead before Jesus. Right in 1 Kings 17, Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha raised the Shumite woman's son. Then, in what is an extremely odd story, in 2 Kings 13, a dead man was put in Elisha's tomb, and when his his body touched Elisha's bones, he revived and came back to life. And then in the life of Jesus, Jesus was going about in Luke 7, and there was a widow of Nain, and they were having a funeral for her son, and she was weeping, and Jesus raised that boy from the dead. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Luke chapter 8. And then, probably most famous of all, John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. All of those took place before Jesus' resurrection. So that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead can't mean He's the first person to be raised from the dead. And if it can't mean that with firstborn among those firstborn among the dead, then it probably, and it doesn't mean that, among firstborn among creation. What it means that Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, is that when all the dead are raised, who are they all going to look to as Lord? When all of the dead are raised, who are they all going to bow before as King? Jesus. He has the place of preeminence among those who have been raised from the dead. And we'll talk about it again in a little bit. He has the place of preeminence because without His resurrection, there are no other resurrections for us. So all Paul is saying by saying Jesus is firstborn over creation, is he is saying Jesus is Lord over creation. That Jesus is Lord means He has the authority over creation. He can rule it as a king rules his kingdom. Now he showed this in his earthly life, didn't he? He he called for storms to be still. He caused food to multiply. He caused diseases to go away. All of those things that Jesus did, he was showing, I am Lord. I am this, this whole Earth and everything in it belongs to me. Psalm 24, 1. The earth in all its fullness belongs to the Lord. Jesus is that Lord. So Jesus is Lord over the physical things that we can see. Why do we as believers not have to fear what goes on in North Korea 
in the Middle East with the economy. Because Jesus is Lord over those things. Jesus is Lord over the things that we cannot see. Why do we not have to live in fear over the fact that there is a very real spiritual enemy who prowls about seeking someone to destroy? Because Jesus is Lord over those things that we cannot see. All spiritual powers on heaven and on earth are subject to the Lordship Jesus Christ. All the kingdoms of this earth are subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Nothing and no one compares to Jesus. Because Jesus is Lord over all. Fourthly, Jesus is eternal. It says in verse 17 that He is before all things. Right? And the idea there is that He existed before everything else, before, and again, all things. Keep that in your mind, all things. So, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. Jesus was before that. Right? So, He has always existed. The false teachers were saying that, that since Jesus was a created being, He had a starting point in His life. And yet, that is not the case. Jesus is eternal. He existed before everything else began. Right? And, and to me, this is really an important concept for us that I know we, I know, we know. But to keep a tight hold on. Right? Jesus did not come into existence one night in Bethlehem. Jesus was incarnated one night in Bethlehem. But He had always existed. Right? Even one of the prophecies about the incarnation makes clear that Jesus is from old, from everlasting. Right? And from everlasting, the picture is from eternity past. His goings are from there. The other word, the idea is He has always been. This is the prophecy that will be born in Bethlehem. Out of you, Bethlehem, shall come forth the one to be the ruler over Israel, whose goings forth, whose, whose doings, from old, from everlasting. Nothing or no one compares to Jesus because Jesus is eternal. But Jesus is also head of the church in verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. The church exists through Jesus. Right? Jesus planned the church. Jesus empowers the church. Jesus is the founder of the church. Now, something just to understand. Why is the church important to us as believers? Because it was important to Jesus. Right? The Bible speaks of this in several ways. In Acts 20, it talks about Jesus dying for the church. In Ephesians 5, it talks about Jesus being married to the church. Jesus loving the church. And it, it is... Well, I've often said it this way, and it's kind of a joke, but it also holds some reality. The Bible speaks of Jesus being the groom and the church being His bride. And I've often said, 
someone were to come to me and say, I, I really like you, Stacy, but I just can't stand your wife. I hate her. She gets on my last nerve. I hate, I hate everything about her, but, but I like you. We wouldn't be friends, me and that person. You're not going to like me and hate my wife and expect that we'll ever be close. I'm not going to be a person that loves Jesus and hates the church and really be close to Jesus. That's just not the way it works. We love Jesus. We love what He loves, which is the church. Now that Jesus is head over the church means several things. It means that Jesus is Lord of the church. But just as the, the body functions under the direction of the brain, so Christians are to work together under the command and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, a part of what this means is, like as a church, and it, not just a local church, but the church as a whole, the whole universal church, we don't get to pick, for instance, what we do in life, what the church's plan or what the church's mission is. That has been determined for us by Jesus. Jesus has said things like, preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus has said, go and make disciples of all nations. That is the mission of the church. That is what Jesus determined was the number one priority. Remember in His life, what did He say He came to do? To seek and to save those who were lost. It's His mission. It's the church's mission. And no one gets to change that because He is the head of the church. He is Lord over the church. Secondly, it means that Jesus unites the church. Now, church as it's used here doesn't specifically like refer to any particular denomination or even a, a local body of believers. Instead, what it means is the universal church it's made up of all people everywhere that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So what is it that unifies the church? Well, it's, it's our commitment to Jesus. And this, this, I think it does work its way out, start local and work its way out, like within our church, our local body of believers. We're different. We have different belief systems about some things, different politics probably, different views on various issues. We may have different preferences and different convictions. But what unifies us? It's Jesus. I mean, even though we're a free will Baptist church, being free will Baptist can't be the unifying concept of our church. It has to be Jesus. So we take it within our local body. Jesus is what unifies us, what, what causes us to lay aside the things that we differ on. But it's not just within the local church. Why can we work with the Nazarene church or the Pentecostal church or the First Baptist church? Because we differ on several things with those folks. We can work together with them because what we have in common is greater than what we differ on. What we have in common is Jesus. Right? And, and so Jesus allows us to be unified, to have this one mission, this one unifying concept to say, you know what, you believe different than me about sanctification. We believe the same about Jesus, and that's what matters most. 
We believe different about election, predestination. But we believe in Jesus together, and that's what matters most. We may disagree about tongues, but we agree about Jesus. And that is what matters most. What matters and what unites the church is Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus gives life to the church. Just as the body does not live without the head, so the church does not live without Jesus. Now, a thing, though, about that is that it is possible for a church to, to lose life. How does that happen? It happens when the church departs from the mission that Jesus has given them. If a church becomes a country club and they're more concerned about me and my four and no more or what I like and what I prefer over reaching those who are far from Christ, we're changing the mission without authority. Now Christ is still moving on that mission and we've stopped. That church soon finds itself without life. A church that maybe that that begins to hate one group of people. I know a church. I've got a friend that pastored a church in, in McAllister. He was fired from the church because he invited a black guy to church. Highway Patrolman. They didn't want those people in their church. I mean, that church still exists, but it's it's dead. I mean. Ichabod is more or less written over the door. Right? We, when we depart from what Jesus is, when we depart from what Jesus does, we remove ourselves from the source of life and, and the church begins to die. And, and Jesus doesn't have any problems doing that. Think about what Jesus said to the, 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 the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. Remember what he said about They had done all of these things that were good, but he had one thing against them, right? They had left their first love. And he told them to repent and to start doing your first works again. And if you don't, what what would he say he would do? He would remove the lampstand. The lampstand was representative of the church. What he was saying is, you got to do what I want you to do the way I want you to do it, or I'm going to take life away from the church. The reality is, the Ephesian church is no more. They didn't heed what he said. And he took that life away from it. The church that neglects or departs from the mission of Jesus, they will find themselves without Jesus and soon without life. And then finally, Jesus conquers through the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16 that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail his would not prevail against it. Jesus is extending his kingdom on the earth because he is Lord. He is a conquering king that will extend his kingdom at some point to be over the whole earth. But he does it through the church. He does it through his church. 
Virtually everything that Jesus does in this world, He does through His church. Nothing or no one compares to Jesus because He alone is head of the church. Jesus has, is risen from the dead. It says, verse 18, that He is the firstborn from the dead. The resurrection of, of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christianity. It is the, the hinge on which Christianity swings. Let me show you this quickly. Turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15. It's page 879. And look first at verse 12. And what was going on when Paul wrote this was, there were people in Corinth that said there was no resurrection of the dead, that, that people did not rise from the dead. So he says, Now if Christ has preached that, he, preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most pitiable. Now, we don't have time to get into all of that, but that's a pretty bleak world. A world without a risen Christ is hopeless. Right? There is... Those who die in Christ, they perish. Right? That's eternal death is what that refers to. Not just they physically died. Obviously they physically died. That's what he's talking about. But they have eternally perished. Without a risen Christ, faith is worthless. The, the testimony of the apostles is worthless. Now the reason that matters is, what do our Bibles largely consist of? The testimony of the apostles. So our Bibles are worthless. Without a risen Christ. Preaching is worthless. Everything. Basically there is no hope. If Christ has not risen. And if Christ has not risen. Those of us who have professed faith in Jesus. And have devoted our lives to living in Him. We are fools. We have wasted our lives. And above all of the people on the earth. We are the most pitiful. Sad sacks of all. That's the idea. But he, Paul doesn't leave us there. But now Christ is risen. From the dead in verse 20. And has become the, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, quickly look at verse 50 of the same chapter. Now this I say, brethren. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when corruptible has put on incorruption and mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the picture is the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope as well. 
Because he has been raised, we too will be raised from the dead. But there is hope because of Jesus Christ. Without the risen Jesus, there is no hope beyond this life. And if there is no hope beyond this life, then we just as well do whatever it is that we want to do. Not say no to ourselves so that we can say yes to Jesus. But because Jesus has risen, there is hope. There is a better world coming. It is good to say no to ourselves so that we can say yes to Jesus. Because it will be worth it all. So nothing or no one compares to Jesus because Jesus has risen from the dead. Go ahead and turn back to Colossians 1. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Jesus is creator of all things. He is Lord of all. He is eternal, the head of the church, risen from the dead. And Jesus is God. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. Now the word that's translated as fullness basically means the sum total. All the divine power and attributes. And what that means is all the stuff that makes God God was present in Jesus. But not only was it present, but it pleased the Father that all the fullness, that in Him all the fullness should dwell. Right? And the idea of dwell means that it wasn't there temporarily. It wasn't added to Him. But one of the common, I guess, heresies in our day is that Jesus, He was a man, but at His baptism, when the Holy Spirit came upon Him, at that point, He became divine. Well, what this means is that's not really the case. Right? That, 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 this, that the, all that makes God God, it wasn't something extra that was added to Him to make Him more. It was something that was always a, a part of who He was. Right? Jesus, there has never been a time when all the fullness of God did not dwell in Jesus. In eternity past, before in the beginning, Jesus was God. If the world goes on for a million more years, Jesus will still be God. I mean, none of that will ever change. It has been there permanently. Jesus has always been God. Jesus will always be God. And that will never change. And it's critical that we understand this about who Jesus is. Right? We, really what we have to do is we have to understand that He's God in the flesh. Right? That Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. God in the flesh. And we have to fight the temptation to downplay maybe His deity to make Him more human. Because in doing so, we make Him less than what the Bible says that He was. We remove the... Well, we remove everything that makes Jesus Jesus from Him. At the same time, we've got to be careful not to downplay His humanity. He was a man. He was still 100% man and 100% God. When we downplay His humanity, we still make Him less than what He was. Make Him less than what the Bible says is, is He is. And, and really, to depart from this, that Jesus is God and man, that is a departure from the faith. We don't have time to look at it, but read 2 John. Right? John says that anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is a, is, is a deceiver and antichrist. 
So anyone who downplays the deity of Christ, they are a deceiver. Really, the spirit of the Antichrist is guiding them. If they downplay the humanity of Jesus, they are a deceiver, and the spirit of, of Antichrist is at work in them. He is 100% God, 100% man, and, and any view that has anything different than that is not Christianity. It is a cult. It is a departure from the faith. No one or, or nothing compares to Jesus because Jesus is God. And then finally, Jesus is the Savior. In verse 20, Paul launches into all of the, or not all, but he launches into the redemptive acts that Jesus has done by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him were the things on earth, in heaven, having made peace with the blood of His cross. He describes two particular things. One, are you kidding me? Jesus reconciles us to God. I kept saying, I know I forgot something, but I couldn't see what it was. That's why you never do your own editing. Jesus reconciles us to God. That's what He says the very first of verse 20. By Him to reconcile all things to himself. Now the word reconcile, it means to bring together to love or friendship. Now, let's just think about the implications of that. The cross provides us with a path to a loving relationship with God, a love-based relationship with God. And how awesome is that? Not just forgiveness, but a relationship. Have you ever had someone that wronged you deeply? And you forgave them. But the relationship was forever ruptured. I mean, no matter what, it was there's just no going back to the way it was. We know what that's like. We have forgiven them. We don't hold a grudge. We're not angry. But things are different now. What the cross does is not just bring forgiveness and leave us at a place where things are different now. The cross brings forgiveness and brings us back to a place where God is able to, to be our friend. We can have a love-based relationship with Him. He, he did this because he, he loved us. He didn't want us to be alienated and separated from Him. He wanted us to have that relationship with Him. He, he wanted to be able to pour out good things into our life. He wanted us to walk with Him in this life and then to go on to be with Him in the next. But sin... Our sin, well, it kept a constant rupture going. And because God is holy, He couldn't just overlook sin and He couldn't just excuse sin. Sin had to be punished. I mean, it it had to, to earn its wage. And so Jesus came and He took the punishment that our sins deserve so that we could be reconciled to God. And this was all God's idea. We ought not ever get over that. I mean, there was no outside law that compelled God the Father to send God the Son to die in our place. It was just His desire and His willingness because He loved us. He he planned the cross. And He planned for Jesus to endure hell on our behalf. He, He planned 
for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to draw us to Jesus. It was all God's idea. How awesome is that? And Jesus is the one who made it possible. Secondly, Jesus gives us peace with God. But having made peace through the blood of his cross, this is this is phenomenal. Often when we think about peace with or from God, we think about having peace of mind. To be sure, that's a kind of peace the Bible speaks of, but it is not the peace spoken of here. The peace that Paul is talking about in verse 20 is the kind of peace that brings an end to a state of war between two or more parties. Now, we don't often think of of unbelievers as, as we once were as being in a state of hostilities with God, being at war with God. And yet, that's what Scripture says. Look at verse 21. And you who were once alienated, that's separated from God, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Those without Jesus are alienated, separated from God. They are enemies to God and his kingdom because of their evil thoughts and actions. When I say enemies, man, that's, that's huge. Isn't that a bit much? But there's two reasons for this. We'll cover them quickly. First is, Jesus is Lord. Right? And as Lord over all creation, Jesus has the right to rule. And part of the right to rule is the, the ability to say, this is right and this is wrong. And those who refuse to submit to the rule and the reign of Jesus, they make, him, they make themselves His enemy. Now think about the FBI's most wanted list. What is the person at the very top call? Public enemy number one. Why? Because their rejection of the rule of law in America have made them the enemies of the people and the nation of America. That's exactly what those who refuse to submit to the rule and the reign of Jesus do. In essence, what they say is, no one will rule over my life, not even God. It's treason. It is an act of war against a God who rules over the earth. So they make themselves the enemy of the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom. But another reason that we become we are enemies through sin is because Jesus died for our salvation. Right? Those who refuse to submit to the rule and the reign of Jesus declare through their rebellion that they don't need Jesus. In essence, they declare that his death on their behalf was just a stupid waste of time. Let me ask you like this. If your child died to save another person's life, and they mocked that death, how would you feel? Don't you imagine that God the Father feels the same? A rejection of Jesus' reign over our lives is a rejection of His death in our place. And that rejection leads us to a place of hostility. And I know time is up. And this isn't really a part of the message, but I do want to say, this is one reason we must take the lostness of our loved ones seriously. 
through their sin, through their rebellion, they make themselves the enemies of God. That is eternally serious. Now through the cross, Jesus made it so that hostility could be brought to peace. In a wartime situation, peace can be accomplished in two ways. One, there can be a negotiation and a treaty signed to bring an end to it. During peace negotiations, delegates meet, people make compromises and concessions so that both parties are probably typically not completely happy, but everybody can live with it and they move on. But this process is usually done when the two parties are about equal in strength and both have a desire to win the war. But there are times when one one of the combatants deals a blow so powerful that the other knows they have either no they have no chance at victory. They know that if they do not surrender, they will be completely destroyed. And so they unconditionally surrender. They just hold up their arms and they, they don't make any conditions. They don't ask for any concessions. Just don't destroy us. And we'll surrender to whatever your demands are. Think about in World War II, what happened there. The fighting was intense. It had gone on between the Axis and the Allies. It seemed it would go on forever because the the Japanese would not surrender. Their honor demanded that they not surrender. So what did America do? We dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan surrendered just a few days later. They knew their spirit had been broken. They knew they could not possibly win against such power. What Jesus did on the cross was that kind of a blow against the hostilities. And it is so severe that we we must unconditionally surrender to Jesus and seek peace through Him. Because God's not going to negotiate with us. He only accepts that unconditional surrender. There is no better deal. The cross is the only deal that God is offering. The peace that God offers is nothing less than the forgiveness of sins and the opportunity to change sides. Verse 13 says that when we're saved, we're delivered from the power of darkness and translated or conveyed into the kingdom of His dear Son. We go from being enemies to friends in a moment when we surrender to Jesus Christ and we call out to Him. Nothing or no one can compare to Jesus because Jesus alone saves. Let me close with a quote from one of my commentaries. What should all of this mean to us? Simply this, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Everything extends to His firstness, to a wide scope, as conceivable and beyond. There is no room for a parliament of religions here. Only Christ preeminent. He must have first place in everything. First place in our families. First place in our marriage. First place in our professions. First place in our mission and ministry. First place in matters of intellect. First place in time. First place in love. First place in conversation. First place in pleasures. First place in eating. First place in play. First place in athletics. First place in what we watch. First place in art. First place in music. First place in worship. Let us give him first place. Okay, let's take time now.